Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could stand, we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee, the heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Please welcome Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you, Deacon. It's, it's good to be here. Thank you, thank you very much for coming out. Um, first, I want to open with something about the religious life. The religious life, here we are, by the way, in the year that is the year of the religious. And I'm going to, if you have your handout in a moment, I'm going to have you look. In fact, let's just go ahead and, and, and start by looking at that. The very first quotation I didn't write in there, but it says Pope Francis's apostolic letter to all consecrated people. What that is, the further title, what I left unwritten was on the occasion of the year of consecrated life. So that year started last November, and it goes through next February. So Pope Francis has dedicated this year in honor of the consecrated life. Let me read this little paragraph to you. From the beginnings of monasticism to the new communities of our own time, every form of consecrated life has been born of the Spirit's call to follow Jesus as the gospel teaches. For the various founders and foundresses, the gospel was the absolute rule, whereas every other rule was meant merely to be an expression of the gospel and a means of living the gospel to the full. For them, the ideal was Christ. They sought to be interiorly united to him and thus able to be able to say with St. Paul, for me to live is Christ. Their vows were intended as a concrete expression of this passionate love. I want to point to this particularly because it's, it's beautiful to see how he points to the religious life as being Christian life at its fullness. So there's an importance to the religious life, to the consecrated life, for all of us who are not called to it, it remains extremely important for us to look to it because it is the most clear expression of the Christian life in its fullness. So what we're looking at here tonight, the rule of St. Benedict, is a rule that is written for people who are going to live the religious life. 
And so you might reasonably have wondered, well, why would we be interested to look at a rule written by St. Benedict precisely for monks? Well, I begin here in this year of the consecrated life where Pope Francis, and he goes on, I didn't, I didn't put this in here, where he talks about how he wants the rest of us to learn from the consecrated life, to look to the religious life, to take from it our cue. I go on to another part of the letter. He is here speaking to the religious. I am counting on you to wake up the world since the distinctive sign of consecrated life is prophecy. As I told the superiors general, radical evangelical living is not only for religious, by religious there he means religious in the proper sense, it is demanded of everyone, but religious follow the Lord in a special way, in a prophetic way. So the religious life is a special sign to us, ladies and gentlemen. It's a special sign of Christianity at its height. So what is, our, what is our interest here tonight? I want to look with you with a, at this rule that's written for religious, but what is our main interest? Our main interest here is not historical. Our main interest is not simply to understand the monastic life for the sake of understanding the monastic life. Our interest is to look at the fundamental principles of the spiritual life that are expressed here, that are the fundamental principles of our spiritual life, too. One of the things I particularly love about the, the theology of the religious life is its the religious life is called an eschatological sign. It's a sign of the ultimate things. When you look at a religious, and you understand what I mean by religious, I mean someone who is living the vowed life of poverty, chastity, and obedience. When you look at a religious, you see someone who is in a unique way instantiating right now the life that all of us are called to live one day in heaven. They are a sign here of what is first and most important ultimately for all of us. So again, our interest is not fundamentally historical. Our interest here is to glean from this beautiful rule, fundamental principles for how we might grow in our own spirituality. There is a lot that could be said, ladies and gentlemen, about the historical significance of the rule of St. Benedict. I, I don't even really want to try to do that because what I would say would be so insufficient. Suffice it to say that the rule of St. Benedict, this little text, is absolutely one of the most influential works ever written, profoundly influential on the course of Western civilization, absolutely a text that gave form to the Middle Ages, the time when the Catholic faith was most formative of the social structures of the world. The rule of St. Benedict was a kind of hallmark of that. The effect that Benedictines, those who have lived this rule faithfully, for 1,500 years is astounding. But that is not my area of expertise, and that I'm not going to try to speak to other than just mentioning that to you in passing. It would be very worthwhile you're looking more into that. I want to go in and mine out a few gems, but I wanted to, for the moment, I'm going to skip 
the, the second big um, quotation here is a paragraph from Lumen Gentium, which as you know is one of the main parts of Vatican II, and it's a very beautiful expression of the place of the religious life in the life of the church. I'm going to set that aside and leave that for your reference, and I'm going to go to the bottom of the page which, to a quotation from a famous French bishop, Bossuet, and this is what he said about the rule of St. Benedict. In epitome of Christianity, a learned and mysterious abridgment of all the doctrines of the gospel, all the institutions of the fathers, and all the counsels of perfection. So spiritual masters have spoken of the rule of St. Benedict in the absolute highest of terms. So let's go ahead and take a peek. Here, um, what I want you to be able to see from the rule you have before you in this quotation, I very much recommend for your spiritual reading, just buying it, it's easily available, buying it, um, you will find that there is a bit of it that is not particularly uh, applicable to us. There's just many things in there that have to do with the details of monastic life. It's particularly the first handful of chapters. Indeed, you can go online and find it very easily online and just print that out if you don't want to get the whole book. The prologue, ladies and gentlemen, where we're going to spend our first chunk of time is, frankly, breathtaking, which I hope you'll see in just a second. After that, we have several, the first three chapters give the organic structure of the monastic family or community, and then chapters four to seven give the main means of individual pursuit of perfection, and we're particularly going to focus on that. Then comes a section of the rule that is on liturgical prayer, which I will only very briefly advert to and not say very much about. Then the latter chapters, there's many interesting miscellaneous things, but we're going to go to one particular one to look at something briefly together as we wrap up this evening, where he addresses one of the famous Benedictine themes, manual labor. So without further ado, let us go to the prologue itself. If you haven't really read this or read it for a while, you are in for a little treat. On the second page of our handout, quotations from the rule, this is the translation of Abbot Justin McCann, M-C-C-A-N-N. -C Hearken, O my son, to the precept of your master, and incline the ear of your heart. Willingly receive and faithfully fulfill the admonition of your loving Father, that you may return by the labor of obedience to him from whom you had departed through the sloth of disobedience. To you, therefore, my words are now addressed, whoever you are, that renouncing your own will, you do take up the strong and bright weapons of obedience in order to fight for the Lord Christ, our true King. Ladies and gentlemen, the key theme, the very first word, hearken. This is going to be our central theme for the evening. Listen. He begins with this 
great word, hearken. The first thing that we need to do in the Christian life is to learn how to listen. And he gives it right here at the beginning as a command. Listen. Note to whom this is addressed. Listen, O my son, to the precepts of your master. So right away we have, a, we have a fabulous context being set up. We are being invited to listen. To whom are we being beckoned to listen? We're being beckoned to listen to a father. Now interestingly here, there had been some apparently disagreement about this, but the, the general opinion is that St. Benedict is referring to himself. He is the Father. Some people questioned, would he have referred to himself as a master? The general view is he is referring to himself. There's something very fascinating here. Right off the bat, we have an amazing insight, ladies and gentlemen, into something that's absolutely at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of human life, and that is fatherhood. The context here is fathers call to they speak to their children, and they have something absolutely critical to say. And a great commentator on the uh, rule to him I'm going to be referring a bit, his name is Dom, D-O-L, D-O-M, is how you refer to an abbot, a Benedictine abbot, Paul Delatte, D-E-L-A-T-T-E. Dom Delatte points out, isn't it interesting that we have an immediate insight into fatherhood when it says, hearken, O my son, to the precepts of your master. What do fathers do? Fathers give precepts. Ladies and gentlemen, be prepared for something that is extremely politically incorrect. It's in the sense it's very culturally foreign to us. This cuts against the grain of fundamental themes of, of the air we breathe, of the water that we swim in. But I invite you to try to jump into the water here with St. Benedict. Feel the power of the voice of a loving father who is unabashedly an authority who gives commands. Listen to what Dom Delant says by the fact that it immediately goes to, I have commands to give you. He says, this suggests that the highest form of fatherhood is that which transmits doctrine and enlightenment. Note the beautiful notion of pardon me, fatherhood implied here. A father is one who needs to be wise, he understands in his love what is good for his children, and he commands them to do it. And in that commanding, he is directing them to their happiness. I present for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen, right here we have the foundation of everything. God, first of all, himself, is a father, a loving father who has something to say to us 
that is for our happiness, and it's going to be serious, and it's going to be a command, and it's going to be about our own good. In the great drama of the Christian life, of human life, is will we listen to the loving command of a father who knows and thus acts. Dom DeLotte goes on, speaking of St. Benedict, and says, experience shows that no earthly fatherhood has ever so closely resembled the fatherhood of God as did St. Benedict's. Very, very remarkable assertion that he makes. Again, I will read that to you. Experience shows that no earthly fatherhood has ever so closely resembled the fatherhood of God as did the fatherhood of St. Benedict vis-a-vis his spiritual children to whom he is here talking. Let us go on. That you may return by the labor of obedience to him from whom you had departed through the sloth of disobedience. So right off the bat, we have an, an assertion of the absolute centrality of obedience. Ladies and gentlemen, for St. Benedict, the word obedience is the word of the greatest power and beauty. It is at the epicenter of will we be the good child that we are called to be. The fundamental drama. Will we, first of all, obey? For, of course, the whole problem of human life comes, first of all, as he points to, from disobedience. So really we have the whole drama set up here. I recommend again as we go through this that we keep in mind this beautiful notion of thinking in terms of fatherhood, thinking in terms of Benedict as a father, thinking in terms of Benedict as an image of the fatherhood of God as he seeks to show us how to become happy. Let's look at the second paragraph. In the first place, whatever good work you begin to do, beg of him with most earnest prayer to perfect it, that he who is now vouchsafed to count us in the number of his children may not at any time be grieved by our evil deeds. Note he's immediately there moved to now fatherhood of God. He introduced himself as a father who wants to speak to his children. Benedict did. Now he's putting, he first mentions Christ as a king, but now in the second paragraph, we have reference to God as Father inasmuch as we're being called children. For we must always so serve Him. And it's interesting. He has no problem with going back and forth between child and servant. Child and servant. When you're talking about God, there's no contradiction, no fear there of the notion of servant. For we must also so serve Him so with the good things he has given us, that not only may he never, as an angry father, disinherit his children, but may never, 
as a dread Lord incensed by our sins, deliver us to everlasting punishment as most wicked servants who would not follow him to glory. No, no, it, it, it's interesting. There's, there's, it, we get this interesting play between incredible tenderness and then, and, and then what, what might seem to be a little bit harsh. All of a sudden, he's referring to an angry father who might disinherit his children. Would a father ever disinherit his children? Is there a reason ever to disinherit a child, I ask you? Being a little bit of a philosophy professor here by letting you stew in that for a moment. <laughs> St. Benedict certainly seems to think so. Cannot a child freely act in such a way as to functionally have himself put himself in the position of disinheritance where the father in respect of that, would honor it. Seems to me the drama is that high that, yes, that actually can happen. Let's go on to the third paragraph where the drama just increases. Let us then at length arise. Be, be, tu be tuned into the, to, to the imagery, the movement. Let us then at length arise since the Scripture stirs us up, saying, it's time for us to rise from sleep, and our eyes being open to the deifying light, let us hear with wondering ears what the divine voice admonishes us, daily crying out. Now pause. Note, now all of a sudden, now we're, now we're really in the, in the deep water. At the beginning, he called out to his children and said, I have some precepts to give you. I need you to listen up. There's a lot at stake here, he says to them. Now we're really going into the deep water because now he's talking about not his, Benedict's, invitation to his children. Now he's saying the whole context of my, Benedict's, invitation to you, my children, is the greater context of a father who has something to say, and are we going to listen and obey and respond or not? Let us hear with wondering ears what the divine voice admonishes us, daily crying out. Isn't that, isn't that a strong image? God himself, daily crying out, today, if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And again, he that hath ears to hear, he's the one who gave them to us. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And what says he? What is God really crying out every day? Come, my children, hearken to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Run while ye have the light of life, lest the darkness of death 
seize hold of you. Isn't that just unbelievably powerful? How urgent, absolutely urgent, this divine call to us is. Calling out to us absolutely every day with an urgency that our life is at stake. Part of the, part of the thing that I really love here is this sense of God is seeking us. Let us then at length arise since the Scripture stirs us up, saying it's time for us to rise from sleep, and our eyes being opened to the divine light, let us hear with wondering ears with divine voice admonishes us daily crying out. And look at the next paragraph. And the Lord, seeking His own workmen in the multitude of the people to whom He thus cries out, says again, who is the man that will have life and desires to see good days? And if you, hearing him, answer, I am he, God says to you, if thou wilt have true and everlasting life. And he goes on and he says what he says there. I'd just like to come back. When I was, when I was looking at this, uh, uh, something came to my mind that a lecture, Deacon Sabatino now claims he doesn't remember, um, saying this, but I remember it very, very well. He was giving a presentation on the book of Genesis, and after Adam and Eve had sinned, do you remember that dramatic moment where God comes looking for them? I'm going to read you from the second chapter of Genesis. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? When Deacon Sabatino presented this, he, he just reminded me he was referring to, to St. Ephraim who gives us an image of at that moment, it's as though God was, 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 was looking, looking. He knows where they are, but He's looking. And He's saying, where are you? What have you done? Where have you gone? Come back. So this incredible drama, ladies and gentlemen, why does this appeal to us so much? This is our story. This is the story of our life. Frankly, whether we know it or not, the story is that we, in fact, are far in many ways from God, and God is seeking us, and He is calling out. He is constantly speaking to us. This is the story that St. Benedict is inviting us to see and to invite us into then the great drama of will we hear. Isn't it chilling to think of Adam and Eve hiding? They heard Him coming and they hid. It would be interesting to reflect how much do we do that in what ways do we do that? 
know whether anyone has another side note has, has read the book by, um, is now published by Maricacus, pardon me, pu published by Ignatius. It's uh, Reflections on the Gospel of St. Matthew by a, a, a great, and he's now a priest uh, named Maricacus. And he is reflecting on you know, beautiful meditation of our Lord when he called the first disciples of the Sea of Galilee. He says in the Greek you can see when it says he was walking along the edge of the sea and he saw them fishing. He said the Greek makes clear and he watched them for a while. And Mary Caucus says here at the beginning of our Lord's ministry, it's as though he's hearkening back to the very beginning there in the garden. God is looking. He's looking to find again when our Lord came and there he was at the Sea of Galilee. He was looking for his disciples. They weren't looking for him at first. He was looking for them, and he went and found them. I'd like to wrap up on the, on the prologue here by quoting again Dom Paul DeLotte, who says that the master thought of the rule, the master thought of the rule of St. Benedict, ladies and gentlemen, is that we in response to God's seeking us, must seek Him. The master thought of the rule of St. Benedict is that we need to seek God. I was very surprised when I read that because after, after the prologue has all the emphasis here on God is calling, God is reaching out to us, God is seeking us. I was a little surprised to find but the master thought what we are being called to do, what we are being called to do is seek him. So somehow here we have this fundamental drama set up of God is calling out to us. We need to hear that call. And hearing that call, we need to set out to find him. And indeed, the interesting thing is, though God is being so active in seeking us, He actually remains very hidden. And that is why we need to seek Him. And so the whole rule is in fact a school of how to go about seeking the God that is seeking us but for our own good, he remains hidden so as to draw us more to himself. Here is a beautiful reflection on that point of the hiddenness of God from Dom de Lot. Quotes Isaiah 55, Verily, thou art a hidden God, God of Israel, the Savior. Even when he reveals himself, he, this is Dom Blatt, he is still hidden in creation, in the incarnation, in redemption, in the Eucharist. Isn't that a remarkable? I find this incredibly striking. God, when he reveals himself to us, when he calls to us, he is in fact remaining hidden from us. Dom DeLac goes on, he reveals himself more and hides himself more. He is at once God giving himself 
and God incommunicable. Look at those interesting several examples that he just gave in creation, in incarnation, in redemption, and the Eucharist. Isn't there an interesting little drama there? God reveals himself to us in nature. At the same time, he's very much hidden there. God reveals himself by becoming man. At the same time, in Christ, he's very much hidden. And then perhaps the most striking of all, God reveals himself in the Eucharist, but he remains extremely hidden. So somehow the fascinating dynamic here is going to be we have to seek. He is actively seeking us, but our own good is going to be that we're going to have to actively seek him because he's remaining hidden. I want to share with you a side point here that absolutely caught me off guard um, that Dom DeLotte reflected on here when he was reflecting on the hiddenness of God and how we have to seek for him. And he just offhandedly says the following. It really struck me and perhaps will mean something to you. He said, have you ever wondered why some people that we were very close to in life, when they pass away, they don't communicate with us. So doesn't this seem to be strange, these people to whom we were so close? Why is it that they don't communicate with us? And Dom DeLotte says, it all has to do with the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God is to call forth our faith for our own good. And Dom Delat points to the last thing that our beloved deceased would do is interrupt that beautiful realm of our need to grow in faith and to seek a hidden God. That meant a lot to me. I thought you might appreciate that as fitting very beautifully. It gave me a very concrete way of beginning to appreciate how the one seeking us has designed everything for our good, even when it doesn't feel like it. The next section of the rule I'd like to look at is chapters 4 through 7. 4 through 7 are going to give us some very concrete ways to be able to seek, to be able to listen. So our key themes at this point, ladies and gentlemen, are we need to seek God. The fundamental disposition of seeking God is going to begin by we have to listen to him. That's why St. Benedict began with that. God's calling, we need to listen. If we listen, we're going to be seeking. If we're seeking, we're going to be listening. Now it's time to get a little bit more concrete. How, what are the dispositions whereby St. Benedict is going to help us know how to do that? The big three that he gives us are obedience, silence, and humility. Obedience, silence, and humility. I have to admit, I'm almost tempted to to maybe you too, or to, to laugh out loud when you hear that. Well, that, that, that sounds perhaps a little grim, 
or in any case, in, in, in our culture, it doesn't sound like that's going to be too exciting. Obedience, silence, and humility. The, these are going to be the ways. Let's go back to fatherhood for a moment. Have you ever wrestled with this, if you have the joy of being a parent? At very dramatic moments, you feel like you would give anything for your children to understand that you understand what they need and they don't. <laughs> you would give anything to have them just see that. Can you just trust me on this one? And when we're in that, when we're going through that, isn't it dramatic? Because it's all about the fatherhood of God. Will, you'd think I would learn at those moments that we'd step back and say, Heavenly Father, of course, of course, we don't get it. And we are constantly bucking against these things, assuming quite confident that we know better. I mean, our, our teenagers are perfect images, I dare say, of us vis-a-vis -vis God. We hear this and we think, no, you, 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 got, you got to be kidding. The way to my happiness, the way to this flourishing sonship is going to come under names like that, obedience, silence, and humility. All right, let's, let's go ahead and take a little peek here. Let's look at um, each of them. I gave you a little quotation from each of these great chapters. They're short chapters. I've chosen out a couple of, of sentences I think you might appreciate. Again, I really encourage you to go back and, and, and read them in their totality. Chapter 5, Obedience. The first degree of humility is obedience without delay. This becomes those who hold nothing dearer to them than Christ, and who on account of the holy servitude which they have taken upon them, and for the fear of hell, and for the glory of life everlasting, as soon as anything is ordered by the superior, just as if it had been commanded by God himself, are, are unable to bear delay in doing it. It is of these that the Lord says, at the hearing of the ear he hath obeyed me. And again, to teachers he saith, he that heareth you, heareth me. There's much going on here, ladies and gentlemen. What, what, what it seems to be a key kernel that's going on here, perhaps part of the hardest thing here is we don't necessarily find it that difficult to picture ourselves being obedient to God. But very clearly here, what St. Benedict is talking about is being obedient to other authorities. St. Thomas, when he talks about obedience, is absolutely clear on this. The fundamental way that we practice in a daily way obedience to God is to be willing to be obedient to a legitimate human authority because of God. That is where the rubber meets the road in our willingness to truly obey. So we see here obedience as the, the central, central theme. No, ladies and gentlemen, in the, in the three vows of the religious life, poverty, chastity, 
obedience, unequivocally, one is the king of those three. And it's not chastity, and it's not poverty. The real drama is, are we willing to make someone else's will our own? Is the child willing to look to the father? Note how it is an amazing exercise of trust, especially, especially when we don't see the reason for it. It's, it's quite easy to obey when we see, oh, that makes sense to me. Okay, then I'll obey. Is that our approach to obedience? I'll, I'll obey when that makes sense. Honestly, sometimes I'm worried. I, I, even, may, may I be a little challenging to you? I think even sometimes among very orthodox, serious, faithful Catholics, at times you see this attitude even towards the church. They seem to have gotten to the point where they think that they know better than the authority in the church, and they are happy to obey when they're convinced the church authorities are doing what, according to their own judgment, they should be doing. And then church authority does something that we don't like, and then, well, that's not right anymore. I know these areas can be complicated, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm just presenting the wisdom of the ages. What is the centerpiece that our fundamental disposition is not to overvalue our own judgment, but to be willing to submit to legitimate authority wherever it be found. This is not servile of a slave. This is filial. It's of a son. Because sons, they obey. Let's go on to silence. Oh, dear silence. I've just chosen one, one sentence to share with you from this chapter, which I just found so moving. For it becomes the master to speak and to teach, but it beseems the disciple to be silent and to listen. We, ladies and gentlemen, as Christians, by our nature, we are disciples. Even when we have progressed to the heights of holiness, we will always be disciples of the one master. It always, always will be what beseems, befits, belongs to us to listen and under that end to be silent. Isn't it beautiful how he puts those two together? No, he puts that in the context that we've been looking at all along here. The context is listening for the sake of seeking God. It becomes the master to speak and to teach. It beseems the disciple to be silent and to listen. Note, Dom Delot points out in his commentary, this is not silence as though it's all silence. The rule of St. Benedict in other places allows for good conversation. Good conversation is essential. This is not absolute silence. It is not silence for the sake of silence. The great phrase that they use is, it's the spirit of silence. 
I'd like to suggest the spirit of silence in the religious life means something very specific. It's easier to put your finger on it. Ladies and gentlemen, the challenge for you and me is what does the spirit of silence look like for us? This is not a matter of, of, of some little pretending game. Let's pretend we're monks for a little while. Somehow, I dare say, most of all in this present age, if we are to be the sons, the daughters that we're called to be as Christians and here, if listening is the fundamental disposition, silence is for the sake of listening. We can cultivate silence. We cultivate silence for the sake of listening. If there's no silence, there is no listening. The wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of the Holy Fathers that Benedict had already known of, they are placed here in this very simple and beautiful way. We too, ladies and gentlemen, have the challenge of figuring out, and I throw that challenge at you in a very concrete way, how are we going to live the spirit of silence how are we going to put it into our day? It's so easy for me to stand here and say this. It's so difficult to do it, but in St. Benedict's mind, it's of the essence of the project. If we are going to be sons who hear, we have to have silence. He also notes in passing, by the way, not only does silence allow us, dispose us to hear, the great tradition point out, it also preserves us from a multitude of sins. Isn't it true? How many times if we had just held our tongue? Isn't that a beautiful thought? Challenging thought? Just a little bit now on humility. Chapter 7. Once, brethren, if we wish to arrive at the highest point of humility and speedily to reach that heavenly exaltation to which we can only ascend by the humility of this present life, we must, by our ever-ascending actions, erect such a ladder as that which Jacob beheld in his dream. This is going to, the fathers love to use Jacob ladder. This is a great Jacob ladder moment being used unto good effect here. By which the angels appeared to him descending and ascending. This descent and us and signify nothing else than that we descend by exaltation, exalting ourselves, and we ascend by humility. And the ladder thus erected is our life in the world, which if the heart be humbled, is lifted up by the Lord to heaven. It's a very beautiful image there. Let me read that one again. And the ladder thus erected is our life, in the world, which, if the heart is humbled, is lifted up by the Lord to heaven. Note, we don't ever climb to heaven ourselves. By humility, we are climbing a ladder, and he gives you the image of, in our humility, then God takes that ladder and he lifts it up so that when you get to the top rung, you're home someplace you never could have gotten to on your own. The sides of the same ladder we understand to be our body and soul, in which the call of God has placed various degrees of humility or discipline 
which we must ascend. Dom DeLott gives a nice little uh, a reflection on the centrality of humility, and he says the following in explanation of this great text. We must remain attached to God as a child to its mother's breast, so as to live by Him and to grow in Him. And this is the work of humility. I love how it connects it back to this whole theme of we're a child, God's the parent. Here we have this beautiful aspect of this image of motherhood is brought in. Parents have to do everything for the child. Our fundamental disposition is we need to look to God to do absolutely everything for us. For this is simply the truth of the matter. Let's take a couple of peeks here at, um, I did not give this to you in your handout because it would have been a little bit too much, but if you have occasion to look at, which again I think you will find rather remarkable, the chapter, this is a little bit of a longer chapter, chapter 7 of the rules on humility, and he famously gives 12 degrees of humility, 12 degrees of it. It's, they're, they're pretty challenging. Humility is always one of those, it, it's, it, it, we can talk about what it is. It's so hard to know, okay, I need, I need to be super humble. I need to completely depend upon God. Now what do I do? How do I act as though I'm completely depending on God? I just stop doing things? No. He gives some very concrete suggestions as to different things that you do that are different kinds or expressions of humility. I just want to read a couple of them just to give you a little sense of how he is directing the monks to be working on this. Of the twelve, here's the fourth degree. The fourth degree of humility is that meeting in this obedience, the obedience we've been talking about, to human superiors, in this obedience, in meeting in this obedience with difficulties and contradictions and even injustice, he should with a quiet mind hold fast to patience, and enduring neither tire nor run away. For the Scripture saith, he that shall persevere to the end shall be saved, and again let thy heart take courage and wait for the Lord. So a kind of humility is to be willing to endure. He's putting it in the context of enduring in you obedience. I, 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 this very much appeals to me because I, I picture myself in, in, in various circumstances where I just feel like, Lord, I've been, I've been trying to be faithful here. And then I find myself saying, Lord, really, after all this, am I really going to have to keep going through this? Am I going to have to keep bearing this cross? Am I going to have to keep suffering this? And it's right at that moment that in humility we say, yes, yes. I should see it that way. I am going to have to keep doing that. That is fitting. Here's another one. The seventh degree of humility is that he should not only in his speech declare himself lower, you're ready for this, you find this a little challenging. 
in his speech that he should not only in his speech declare himself lower and of less account than all others, but should in his own inmost heart believe it, humbling himself and saying with the prophet, but I am a worm and no man, a byword to all men and the laughing stock of the people. I have been lifted up only to be humbled and confounded. And again, it is good for me that thou hast humbled me that I may learn thy commandments. Give me a lot of quotations from the Psalms there. Let me say again what he's, what he's recommending. We're not gonna be able to perhaps fully grasp this, ladies and gentlemen, but I didn't wanna shy away from giving you one of the harder ones there. What's he saying? We need to remind ourselves that we are low and that we should see ourselves as even less worthy than others. And this will be salutary for us. We should not only in speech declare himself lower and of less account than others, he should in his own inmost heart believe it. That it will be salutary. This isn't a matter, ladies and gentlemen, of lying to ourselves, but a, a willingness to look and see true ways in which we can truly say, we have been unfaithful. We are unworthy. We are not worthy of that which we are receiving. Final one I'm going to give you as an example here. Ninth degree of humility is that a monk restrain his tongue and keep silence, not speaking until he is questioned. I particularly love that one as I, I, I know I'm too often confident that I have something to say in conversation and speak before I've been spoken to or asked, isn't it a great way to exercise humility? To be willing to say, I'm gonna hold my tongue. I'm not gonna speak. I'm gonna wait. The last area, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to look at with you here before we wrap up, after having looked at those three areas there, obedience and silence and of humility, finally he has a very beautiful chapter on manual labor. And I'm going to have you take a peek at that here on our, our third page, and, this is, and we're going to make a couple quick distinctions here. Chapter 48 of the Daily Manual Labor. He opens it. Idleness is the enemy of the soul. Therefore, should the brethren be occupied at stated times in manual labor and at other fixed hours in sacred reading? Let me tell you something quickly here to just round out the vision of what the monk's life looks like. The, what, the, the chapters that we've skipped, ladies and gentlemen, are chapters that talk about what is called the work of God, the opus dei, the liturgy. The central part of the monk's life, the central part of the religious life, is liturgy. That's the liturgy of the Eucharist. It's the liturgy of the hours, the bravery, where you have all the different hours of the day. This is the central commanding aspect of the monastic life. And we're skipping the part there. That's the part that's, that for us, it's, very, it's harder for us to do that in the lay state. We are able to do that to a certain extent. That'd be very much worth our looking at, but I'm kind of setting that one aside, but taking as a granted that the center of life is the liturgy. Then outside of the liturgy, how is the monk to spend his time? Here, in this buried at chapter 48, is the key to the whole rest of the day. Interestingly, 
starting with the principle, idleness is the enemy of the soul. Therefore, should the brethren be occupied at stated times in manual labor, in other fixed hours, in sacred reading. Dom DeLotte points out it's, it's kind of funny. In a chapter that's titled as being on manual labor, he sticks in there another thing that's actually more important than the manual labor, namely Lexio Divina, divine reading. So here, ladies and gentlemen, are the three parts of the day. Liturgy, what's called the work of God, then sacred reading, Lexio Divina, if you, they'll often be said in Latin, even in other contexts, and then finally, the manual labor. This rounds out the whole of their day. What I'd like to do is take a quick peek at these two, manual labor and Lexio Divina. Lexio Divina, I've given you a quotation here from Pope Benedict on what it is. In this context, I would like in, a, I would like in particular to recall and recommend the ancient tradition of Lexio Divina. Here, even Pope Benedict was kind of revising the Latin reference there, the very words that are from the rule of St. Benedict. The diligent reading of sacred scripture accompanied by prayer brings about that intimate dialogue in which the person reading hears God who is speaking, and in praying, responds to him with trusting openness of heart. If it is effectively promoted, says Pope Benedict, this practice will bring to the church, I am convinced of it, a new spiritual springtime. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is a little gem that we just are only going to touch upon in passing, but note that in the rule of St. Benedict, after the main focus of the liturgy as the prayer of the church that is the heart of our seeking God, of our responding to His seeking us. We have the liturgy as the most essential way. What are the other two things that constitute it? The first is this Lectio Divina. About four hours of the monk's day would have been spent in Lexio Divina. So the challenge that I want to throw out at you here is, if it was that central, outside the liturgy, what's the next most important thing that the monks did? Divine reading. Divine reading meant most of all Scripture, praying it, meditating it. How can we, the challenge is how can we, like the monks, structure it into our day. For them, it was structured in, in several different times in fairly large chunks. That means, in principle, we can do the same thing. In our state and life, we too can, aside from the liturgy, we can structure in at some point this Lectio Divina. And isn't it interesting that Pope Benedict XVI is saying, if it is effectively promoted, this practice will bring to the church, I'm convinced of it, and he goes to Pope John Paul II's great line, a new springtime. So somehow, he is trying to revitalize that which his namesake, St. Benedict, had had be central to 
the day, the central thing after the liturgy itself. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, we simply have manual labor. The Benedictines are the masters of seeing bodily labor as itself part of the project, part of the project of listening, of hearing God, and of our seeking Him. Somehow, we too, though our <laughs> you would give anything to have them just see that. Can you just trust me on this one? And when we're in that, when we're going through that, isn't it dramatic? Because it's all about the fatherhood of God. Will, you'd think I would learn at those moments that we'd step back and say, Heavenly Father, of course, of course, we don't get it. And we are constantly bucking against these things, assuming quite confident that we know better. I mean, our, our teenagers are perfect images, I dare say, of us vis-a-vis -vis God. We hear this and we think, no, you, you gotta you got be kidding. The way to my happiness, the way to this flourishing sonship is gonna come under names like that, obedience, silence, and humility. All right, let's, let's go ahead and take a little peek here. Let's look at um, each of them. I gave you a little quotation from each of these great chapters. They're short chapters. I've chosen out a couple of, of sentences I think you might appreciate. Again, I really encourage you to go back and, and, and read them in their totality. Chapter 5, Obedience. The first degree of humility is obedience without delay. This becomes those who hold nothing dearer to them than Christ and who on account of the holy servitude which they have taken upon them, and for the fear of hell, and for the glory of life everlasting, as soon as anything is ordered by the superior, just as if it had been commanded by God himself, are, are unable to bear delay in doing it. It is of these that the Lord says, at the hearing of the ear he hath obeyed me, and again, to teachers, he saith, he that heareth you, heareth me. There's much going on here, ladies and gentlemen. What, what, what it seems to be a key kernel that's going on here, perhaps part of the hardest thing here is we don't necessarily find it that difficult to picture ourselves being obedient to God. But very clearly here, what St. Benedict is talking about is being obedient to other authorities. St. Thomas, when he talks about obedience, is absolutely clear on this. The fundamental way that we practice in a daily way obedience to God is to be willing to be obedient to a legitimate human authority because of God. That is where the rubber meets the road in our willingness to truly obey. So we see here obedience as the, the central, central theme. No, ladies and gentlemen, in the, in the three vows of the religious life, poverty, chastity, obedience, unequivocally, one 
is the king of those three. And it's not chastity, and it's not poverty. The real drama is, are we willing to make someone else's will our own? Is the child willing to look to the father? Note how it is an amazing exercise of trust, especially, especially when we don't see the reason for it. It's, it's quite easy to obey when we see, oh, that makes sense to me. Okay, then I'll obey. Is that our approach to obedience? I'll, I'll obey when that makes sense. Honestly, sometimes I'm worried. I, I, even, may, may I be a little challenging to you, I think even sometimes among very orthodox, serious, faithful Catholics, at times you see this attitude even towards the church. They seem to have gotten to the point where they think that they know better than the authority in the church, and they are happy to obey when they're convinced the church authorities are doing what, according to their own judgment, they should be doing. And then church authority does something that we don't like, and then, well, that's not right anymore. I know these areas can be complicated, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm just presenting the wisdom of the ages. What is the centerpiece that our fundamental disposition is not to overvalue our own judgment, but to be willing to submit to legitimate authority wherever it be found. This is not servile of a slave. This is filial. It's of a son. Because sons, they obey. Let's go on to silence. Oh, dear silence. I've just chosen one, one sentence to share with you from this chapter, which I just found so moving. For it becomes the master to speak and to teach, but it beseems the disciple to be silent and to listen. We, ladies and gentlemen, as Christians, by our nature, we are disciples. Even when we have progressed to the heights of holiness, we will always be disciples of the one master. It always, always will be what beseems, befits, belongs to us to listen and under that end to be silent. Isn't it beautiful how he puts those two together? No, he puts that in the context that we've been looking at all along here. The context is listening for the sake of seeking God. It becomes the master to speak and to teach. It beseems the disciple to be silent and to listen. Note, Dom Delot points out in his commentary, this is not silence as though it's all silence. The rule of St. Benedict in other places allows for good conversation. Good conversation is essential. This is not absolute silence. It is not silence for the sake of silence. The great phrase that they use is, it's the spirit of silence. I'd like to suggest 
The spirit of silence in the religious life means something very specific. It's easier to put your finger on it. Ladies and gentlemen, the challenge for you and me is what does the spirit of silence look like for us? This is not a matter of, of, of some little pretending game. Let's pretend we're monks for a little while. Somehow, I dare say, most of all in this present age, if we are to be the sons, the daughters that we're called to be as Christians and here, if listening is the fundamental disposition, silence is for the sake of listening. We can cultivate silence. We cultivate silence for the sake of listening. If there's no silence, there is no listening. The wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of the Holy Fathers that Benedict had already known of, they are placed here in this very simple and beautiful way. We too, ladies and gentlemen, have the challenge of figuring out, and I throw that challenge at you in a very concrete way, how are we going to live the spirit of silence how are we going to put it into our day? It's so easy for me to stand here and say this. It's so difficult to do it, but in St. Benedict's mind, it's of the essence of the project. If we are going to be sons who hear, we have to have silence. He also notes in passing, by the way, not only does silence allow us, dispose us to hear, the great tradition pointed out, it also preserves us from a multitude of sins. Isn't it true? How many times if we had just held our tongue? And a beautiful thought, challenging thought. Just a little bit now on humility. Chapter 7. Once, brethren, if we wish to arrive at the highest point of humility and speedily to reach that heavenly exaltation to which we can only ascend by the humility of this present life, we must, by our ever-ascending actions, erect such a ladder as that which Jacob beheld in his dream. This is going to, the Father's love views Jacob ladder. This is a great Jacob ladder moment being used unto good effect here. By which the angels appeared to him descending and ascending. This descent and us and signify nothing else than that we descend by exaltation, exalting ourselves, and we ascend by humility. And the ladder thus erected is our life in the world, which if the heart be humbled, is lifted up by the Lord to heaven. It's a very beautiful image there. Let me read that one again. And the ladder thus erected is our life, in the world, which, if the heart is humbled, is lifted up by the Lord to heaven. Note, we don't ever climb to heaven ourselves. By humility, we are climbing a ladder, and he gives you the image of, in our humility, then God takes that ladder and he lifts it up so that when you get to the top rung, you're home someplace you never could have gotten to on your own. The sides of the same ladder we understand to be our body and soul, in which the call of God has placed various degrees of humility or discipline which we must ascend. 
Dom DeLotte gives a nice little uh, uh, reflection on the centrality of humility, and he says the following in explanation of this great text. We must remain attached to God as a child to its mother's breast, so as to live by Him and to grow in Him. And this is the work of humility. I love how it connects it back to this whole theme of we're a child, God's the parent. Here we have this beautiful aspect of this image of motherhood is brought in. Parents have to do everything for the child. Our fundamental disposition is we need to look to God to do absolutely everything for us. For this is simply the truth of the matter. Let's take a couple of peeks here at, um, I did not give this to you in your handout because it would have been a little bit too much, but if you have occasion to look at, which again I think you will find rather remarkable, the chapter, this is a little bit of a longer chapter, chapter 7 of the rules on humility, and he famously gives 12 degrees of humility, 12 degrees of it. It's, they're, they're pretty challenging. Humility is always one of those, it, it's, it, it, we can talk about what it is. It's so hard to know, okay, I need, an, I need to be super humble. I need to completely depend upon God. Now what do I do? How do I act as though I'm completely depending on God? I just stop doing things? No. He gives some very concrete suggestions as to different things that you do that are different kinds or expressions of humility. And I just want to read a couple of them just to give you a little sense of how he is directing the monks to be working on this. Of the twelve, here's the fourth degree. The fourth degree of humility is that meeting in this obedience, the obedience we've been talking about, to human superiors, in this obedience, in meeting in this obedience with difficulties and contradictions and even injustice, he should with a quiet mind hold fast to patience and enduring neither tire nor run away. For the scripture saith, he that shall persevere to the end shall be saved. And again, let thy heart take courage and wait for the Lord. So a kind of humility is to be willing to endure. He's putting it in the context of enduring in you obedience. I, 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 this very much appeals to me because I, I picture myself in, in, in various circumstances where I just feel like, Lord, I've been, I've, I've been trying to be faithful here. And then I find myself saying, Lord, really, after all this, am I really going to have to keep going through this? Am I going to have to keep bearing this cross? Am I going to have to keep suffering this? it's right at that moment that in humility we say, yes, yes, I should see it that way. I am going to have to keep doing that. That is fitting. Here's another one. The seventh degree of humility is that he should not only in his speech declare himself lower, you're ready for this, find this a little challenging. 
in his speech, that he should not only in his speech declare himself lower and of less account than all others, but should in his own inmost heart believe it, humbling himself and saying with the prophet, but I am a worm and no man, a byword to all men and the laughing stock of the people. I have been lifted up only to be humbled and confounded. And again, it is good for me that thou hast humbled me that I may learn thy commandments. Give me a lot of quotations from the Psalms there. Let me say again what he's, what he's recommending. We're not going to be able to perhaps fully grasp this, ladies and gentlemen, but I didn't want to shy away from giving you one of the harder ones there. What's he saying? We need to remind ourselves that we are low and that we should see ourselves as even less worthy than others. And this will be salutary for us. We should not only in speech declare himself lower and of less account than others, he should in his own inmost heart believe it that it will be salutary. This isn't a matter, ladies and gentlemen, of lying to ourselves, but a, a willingness to look and see true ways in which we can truly say we have been unfaithful. We are unworthy. We are not worthy of that which we are receiving. Final one I'm going to give you as an example here. Ninth degree of humility is that a monk restrain his tongue and keep silence, not speaking until he is questioned. I particularly love that one as I, I, I know I'm too often confident that I have something to say in conversation and speak before I've been spoken to or asked. Isn't it a great way to exercise humility? To be willing to say, I'm going to hold my tongue. I'm not going to speak. I'm going to wait. The last area, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to look at with you here before we wrap up, after having a look at those three areas there, of obedience and silence and of humility, finally he has a very beautiful chapter on manual labor. And I'm going to have you take a peek at that here on our, our third page, and, this is, and we're going to make a couple quick distinctions here. Chapter 48 of the Daily Manual Labor. He opens it. Idleness is the enemy of the soul. Therefore, should the brethren be occupied at stated times in manual labor and at other fixed hours in sacred reading? Let me tell you something quickly here to just round out the vision of what the monk's life looks like. The, what, the, the chapters that we've skipped, ladies and gentlemen, are chapters that talk about what is called the work of God, the opus dei, the liturgy. The central part of the monk's life, the central part of the religious life, is liturgy. That's the liturgy of the Eucharist. It's the liturgy of the hours, the bravery, where you have all the different hours of the day. This is the central commanding aspect of the monastic life. And we're skipping the part there. That's the part that's, that, for us, it's, very, it's harder for us to do that. In the lay state, we are able to do that to a certain extent. That would be very much worth our looking at, but I'm kind of setting that one aside, but taking as a granted that the center of life is the liturgy. Then outside of the liturgy, how is the monk to spend his time? Here in this buried at chapter 48 is the key to the whole rest of the day. Interestingly, 
starting with the principle, idleness is the enemy of the soul. Therefore, should the brethren be occupied at stated times in manual labor, in other fixed hours, in sacred reading. Dom DeLott points out it's, it's kind of funny. In a chapter that's titled as being on manual labor, he sticks in there another thing that's actually more important than the manual labor, namely Lexio Divina, divine reading. So here, ladies and gentlemen, are the three parts of the day. Liturgy, what's called the work of God, then sacred reading, Lexio Divina, if you, they'll often be said in Latin even in other contexts, and then finally, the manual labor. This rounds out the whole of their day. What I'd like to do is take a quick peek at these two, manual labor and Lexio Divina. Lexio Divina, I've given you a quotation here from Pope Benedict on what it is. In this context, I would like in, a, I would like in particular to recall and recommend the ancient tradition of Lexio Divina. Here, even Pope Benedict was kind of revising the Latin reference there, the very words that are from the rule of St. Benedict. The diligent reading of sacred scripture, accompanied by prayer, brings about that intimate dialogue in which the person reading hears God who is speaking, and in praying, responds to him with trusting openness of heart. If it is effectively promoted, says Pope Benedict, this practice will bring to the church, I am convinced of it, a new spiritual springtime. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is a little gem that we just are only going to touch upon in passing, but note that in the rule of St. Benedict, after the main focus of the liturgy as the prayer of the church that is the heart of our seeking God, of our responding to his seeking us. We have the liturgy as the most essential way. What are the other two things that constitute it? The first is this Lexio Divina. About four hours of the monk's day would have been spent in Lexio Divina. So the challenge that I want to throw out at you here is if it was that central, outside the liturgy, what's the next most important thing that the monks did? Divine reading. Divine reading meant most of all scripture, praying it, meditating it. How can we, the challenge is how can we, like the monks, structure it into our day. For them, it was structured in, in several different times in fairly large chunks. That means, in principle, we can do the same thing. In our state and life, we too can, aside from the liturgy, we can structure in at some point this Lexio Divina. And isn't it interesting that Pope Benedict XVI is saying, if it is effectively promoted, this practice will bring to the church, I'm convinced of it, and he goes to Pope John Paul II's great line, a new springtime. So somehow, he is trying to revitalize that which his namesake, St. Benedict, had had be central to 
the day, the central thing after the liturgy itself. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, we simply have manual labor. The Benedictines are the masters of seeing bodily labor as itself part of the project, part of the project of listening, of hearing God, and of our seeking Him. Somehow, we too, though our labor very often now is not manual, we have other forms of labor, it might be more intellectual or in the service industry, all kinds of different works are done. Our challenge is to figure out a way to integrate our work into this context. There is no explanation that is given here, ladies and gentlemen, of how it is to be done. It is just given that manual labor is going to be an essential part and it is to be done in the spirit of listening to God and what He is calling us to be. And what I leave you with on that is that we need to see as central, likewise for us, the sanctifying of that part of our day, that our work itself, like the monks, in our day it's going to be a larger part of the day. The proportions are changed, but they show us how to, how to live the principles. It all is in the context of a Father who is calling us to listen and respond to His precepts in obedience. And that is to be lived out in each of these areas. The liturgy is a much smaller part of our day than it is of theirs. Divine reading will be a much smaller part of our days than it is of theirs. Work is going to be a larger part. But somehow we have to find the way to be referring it back to those other parts of the day. For them, that was a little bit easier, and that's why their state is a more perfect state. But we have to find the way that our work, too, is somehow a listening to what God is calling us to do. I conclude, ladies and gentlemen, with the concluding lines of the rule. But we slothful, ill-living, and negligent people must blush for shame. Whoever therefore thou art that hastenest to thy heavenly country, fulfill first of all by the help of Christ this little rule for beginners. And then at length, under God's protection, shalt thou attain those aforesaid loftier heights of wisdom and virtue. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, we have a question coming in online somewhere over here. Jeffrey and Jacinta, um, what is a good length of time for Lexio Divina for families? For families? Now, okay, um, that's, a, that's a great um, Question. I'm, I'm wondering whether um, I'm going to take that in two different ways because either way could be instructive. In, in general, Lexo Divina is a practice that you do alone. Um, and so I could take that as if you're in a family, 
what would be a good length of time to do lexitivine if you're a family man, woman, child. Um, there, I'm going to say that, of, of course, is going to very much depend upon the situation. I had a spiritual advisor who said, ideally, um, 45 minutes is, is great. If you can get a length of time, uh, a stretch that that's long, it really gives you a chance to kind of wrap up, prayerfully, you know, be reading, get maybe a little commentary, then, then go into it, set it down, think. So I mean, that, I think, I liked that that my director gave me. At the same time, you certainly can do Lexio Divina that's 15 or 20 minutes. Now, in case the person was thinking, what about doing it together, which can be a very beautiful thing. You'd have family sit down, we're going to read scripture together. I mean, there, of course, your younger children, I mean, just to do something like that for 10 or 15 minutes would be a fabulously important thing. Bear in mind that the rosary itself has an aspect of Lexio Divina to it. It is a kind of meditative entering in to mysteries uh, that are in Scripture mostly. And uh, th that can be, a, that, that can be a, you know, the Pope John Paul II's letter on the rosary gives great suggestions of the importance of doing that together as a family. So if the person was thinking that, I, great idea, Sunday afternoon, the Lord's Day, short, I'm sure Deacon Sabatino could say some more about that. But 10, 15 minutes, can, can, a lot can be done. So if uh, uh, when uh, if not being told for our own good uh, is, uh, is the rule, uh, then is that possibly why when uh, uh, St. Thomas knew, he stopped telling us? And so you, you began with not being told for our own good. I'm just sorry, Bob, I'm just trying to, to understand then exactly what you're thinking when you say that. The, I mean, sometimes you're saying certain things don't get explained to us, and that's just important. We have to be willing to accept it on faith. Is it? The, the quote that you made earlier, uh, where uh, somebody has passed away, uh, that we don't hear from them. Okay, so all right, so in the sense of there, all right, um, that it is better for us that we not have, well, interestingly, of course, there's a certain scriptural reference there, too, of where our Lord said, even if someone were to come from the dead, would they believe? But I, I, the, the beauty of um, that we, that God is constantly exercising our faith. He's constantly giving us opportunities to have to trust. And the, he is giving us an opportunity, as well as, our, you might say, our beloved dead are entering into God's plan for cultivating our faith. Now, you make an interesting connection, then. Is that perhaps why St. Thomas didn't write more? I have to think about that, Bob. I, 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 I think there was something else there. I think there was a humility on his part where he was so overwhelmed with, what I have written is so little given what I have seen, I don't really feel worthy to continue to write. So I think that was a little bit more of an exercise of humility and not so much giving us an opportunity to exercise faith. But nonetheless, I, I, I like how your mind is trekking there. Hi. Um, how are superiors chosen? And what does that imply for us lay period, lay persons trying to find a superior? Well, boy, there's a, there's, there, there, there's a lot in that. Um, I, do not, I, I would have to look again at the, at the uh, details of the workings. I mean, the, the, the abbot is, is elected. 
I'm not exactly sure how it's, you know, who exactly votes and so forth, but part of the dramatic thing there is that um, the abbot is the abbot for a very long time. And part of the drama, and, and everybody knows this, and this is, this is part of the drama of the whole uh, realm of authority in general, um, you might be stuck with a situation that, that isn't ideal. This is an argument that is often used against the whole notion of authority. What if the authority, in fact, isn't wise? That is part of the drama of God's providence in which there is sin. Um, I, I think key in the whole principle here is that you still obey. Even when in your judgment, this is not prudent. It's not being, it's, they're not the directions that you would have given were you there. Um, obviously, there's always that principle if you're directed to do something that's sinful, you do not have to obey. But pretty much short of that, the default position is going to be that the appropriate disposition is one of humility, one of I give the benefit of the doubt to authority. Anyone from the military, by the way, will, will point out the whole structure of authority, which is absolutely essential to, to the military working, takes for granted that you cannot have situations where the subordinates are constantly saying, you know, I don't think I would have done that, so I'm just going to decide not to do it. Just it breaks down the whole structure. So in general, you don't get to choose who's in authority over you. And so I think we have to, you know, as Americans, I think we can find that a little bit hard. Uh, that's why a number of the things in here might, might grate against us and even seem to us to just be downright silly. And I think we, we have to be willing to enter into this mindset where, you know, it's, we need to know our place. We need to be willing to assume that low place. Again, within reason, within prudence. But the, that, that is the mode that St. Benedict is going to keep pushing you towards. And, 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 and experience bears out. That actually ends up being for the, for the better. So, I mean, you asked a question about what's this mean for, for rulers that we seek to have. Now, I'll state just a simple principle there. When you do have say over who you're, who's going to be an authority over and you have an ability to vote, you're going to be look for someone who's wise because wisdom and love are the two key characteristics of anyone in authority. You want someone who has good love. You want someone who has wisdom. And so that's what we most of all need to be looking for. But bear in mind, very often, we're not put in the position where we get to do that. Thank you, Dr. Miller. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.